Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we discuss maritime coercion in the Asia-Pacific. CSIS's Asia program and international security program have published a report, Countering Coercion in Maritime Asia, The Theory and Practice of Gray Zone Deterrence. The volume includes a series of case studies exploring the choices of actors in Asia during recent security crises in the maritime domain. Two of the co-authors of the study joined us to share their findings and look ahead to what the United States and its partners should do to ensure continued maritime security. Joining us to discuss the study are Dr. Zach Cooper. Uh, Great. Well, I'm Zach Cooper. I'm a senior fellow here focusing on Asian security issues and, like John, uh, tend to look at Uh, largely defense issues that are focused in the Indo-Pacific region. And Mr. John Schaus. My name is John Schaus. I'm a fellow in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I spend uh, a large part of my time looking at security issues across the Asia-Pacific region. To begin, we asked Zach Cooper, what is maritime coercion? Well, what we've seen from China since at least 2010 is an increasing effort to put pressure on regional states, especially its neighbors in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, to contest maritime claims, particularly over the Senkaku, Diayu Islands, and over parts of the South China Sea. And the way the Chinese have attempted to contest those claims uh, is through what we call low-level coercion, coercion that doesn't cross a threshold to conventional warfare. And so that's what we are thinking of when we talk about maritime coercion. One of the key ideas behind the study's analysis is gray zone deterrence. Cooper explains that it involves a combination of convincing countries to do certain things or discouraging them from taking specific actions. We differentiate between uh, coercion, uh, which has two parts, compellence and deterrence. Compellence is about uh, convincing an adversary to do something they would not otherwise have done. And deterrence is about convincing an adversary not to do something. Uh, And so from the Chinese perspective, uh, often what China is trying to do is compel its neighbors to change their actions or compel the United States to change its actions. And then the adverse, uh, the opposite of that would be the deterrence effort on part of those regional states in the United States to convince China not to put that pressure on in the first place. Why is considering the effects of maritime coercion in Asia important? John Schaus provides an overview. Maritime coercion is important probably for three key reasons. First, what we call freedom of navigation. And what this means is that all countries, regardless of size or location, have equal access to the oceans for trade, for fishing, or for any other practical purposes beyond other countries' territorial waters. So what does this mean in practice? It means, for example, in the South China Sea, that $5.3 trillion of trade flow through there each year, moving from the Middle East to Asia, from Asia to the Middle East and Africa and back. This is expected to grow in coming years and decades as countries in East Asia, Southeast Asia, other parts of the world see their economies grow and their people become more prosperous. So freedom of navigation allows expanded trade, allows greater prosperity. And What that means is that countries don't need to ask permission to grow. There's not some authority that says, well, you traded too much this year or you fished too much. It's open for people who want access because it's free. It's the international commons. 
in the case studies that we looked at for this study, what makes me worried is that the coercive pattern of behavior suggests that it's possible in the future countries that have enjoyed freedom of access and freedom of navigation for trade and for, for economic benefit may not have that access and that opportunity in the future. Why should Americans or others care? Cooper and Schaus explain that this is a bipartisan concern that has emerged in the last few years and one with economic ramifications for the United States. Well, I think the interest uh, in Chinese activities in the South China Sea has, has grown, especially since about 2014 when land reclamation began uh, in the South China Sea. And this has been a bipartisan issue. We've seen members of Congress from both sides of the aisle write letters repeatedly um, to the administration, both a Democratic and a Republican administration, expressing concern about changes in the South China Sea and the East China Sea as well. And so there is a bipartisan concern about Chinese activities and about whether the United States is taking sufficient uh, actions to deter those activities. And you know, I think this is going to be a long-running challenge. We know that China is rising. If China continues to rise, it's likely to seek a uh, greater role in the region, both in determining the rules and norms that govern the region, but also in uh, physical control of territory. And so as China expands its power, it will also look to expand its influence. And it's going to do so in many cases in the maritime areas, um, because those are some of the few areas that aren't physically blocked, right? China can move out into the East China Sea and South China Sea and it doesn't have the same kind of opposition that it might uh, on its land borders. If I can add to that, why does it matter to Americans? You, you asked us that a moment ago. For 80 years, the United States has grown and prospered based on international trade and an equal rules system, or a system of rules where everyone is equal. If China is able to unilaterally assert control and change who owns a space and how people operate in it, that hurts a system that benefits the United States and therefore will likely hurt the U.S. economy. As part of the project, our team evaluated nine case studies involving China and other countries in Southeast and Northeast Asia. John Schaus breaks down two of the more unique cases. First, he discusses the 2014 Chinese-Vietnamese standoff over the placement of a Chinese oil drilling platform in the South China Sea waters claimed by Vietnam. He contrasts this with a second case, the extended Chinese land reclamation campaign on reefs claimed by several states in the South China Sea over a period of three years. The two I'd like to, to key in on are the Vietnam oil rig situation and then land reclamation in the South China Sea. And these, these two case studies offer very different actions and outcomes. So first with the, the oil rig situation. Uh, what happened in this case is China through one of its national oil companies, moved a, a massive offshore oil rig into disputed territories and began exploratory drilling. And, and what this means is Vietnam claims the territory it was drilling in, China claims the territory it was drilling in, but if China successfully starts extracting resources, that's, Vietnam would see that as taking its resources. And it's a highly provocative act to the Vietnamese. And it's a very legitimate act to the Chinese. So we have two different perspectives there. What Vietnam did in this case is it responded very forcefully and very quickly, but also in a calibrated way. So China was moving commercial assets to contest a physical space in the maritime domain. Vietnam responded by putting hundreds of fishing vessels into uh, the area around 
the, the oil platform to contest its presence there. And those were supported by uh, Vietnamese Coast Guard vessels, and the oil rig from China was supported by its own fishing and Coast Guard vessels. But we had a very tense kind of standoff between these competing maritime vessels, ultimately resulting in China withdrawing the oil rig several weeks before its originally planned date. So we would, I think, in our analysis, say that that was a, uh, a coercive failure on China's part. Now, to contrast, we have the, the situation where China has been uh, dredging and creating new uh, territory on contested features in the South China Sea, and it's been doing this at a number of locations for a number of years, since Zach mentioned 2014. The U.S. and the regional response to that has been very, very measured and entirely diplomatic. We, we have collectively and individually made statements calling, on, uh, a, calling for a halt to reclamation, uh, a return to dialogue, uh, to not militarize these features, but there's been no uh, or very little specific action taken. And as a result, the, the land reclamation has continued, and we've seen the installation of military or near-military uh, capabilities on a number of these islands. And so to, to bring these two cases back together, what I see is a very successful Vietnamese countering of a Chinese uh, coercive attempt because they took an unexpected, dramatic, but calibrated action immediately upon realizing there was a, a coercive act underway. And in the island reclamation case, we've seen a different approach for good reasons, but it was a measured, uh, slow approach focused on diplomatic efforts that didn't provide real resistance to China and that ultimately did not lead to the outcomes sought uh, when the, the United States and other countries attempted to convince China to stop. How does this coercion actually play out in reality? To get a better sense, we asked Zach Cooper to break down what happened between regional fishing vessels and Coast Guard ships in the China-Vietnam oil platform case during 2014. Sure. Well, in the Vietnam oil rig case, as John described, uh, the Chinese really had uh, three rings of vessels. The closest to the rig were naval vessels. Uh, the ring around that was Coast Guard, and then the ring around that was fishing vessels or maritime militia. And what would happen is every time a Vietnamese vessel attempted to get close to the rig, it would be challenged first by the fishing vessels. Uh, and this could mean that it was directly confronted, uh, that the fishing vessels would go in its path. In some cases, there were collisions. In some cases, there was, in fact, a ship that was sunk. Um, and then even if a Vietnamese vessel got through that first ring, it would encounter Coast Guard vessels from China. And these Coast Guard vessels would use water cannons and again would shoulder. Uh, they would actually directly uh, hit the Vietnamese vessels. And that's just for those vessels to get then again to the third ring, which would have been the military, uh, the PLA Navy. So, you know, the challenge for Vietnam or for any country in these kinds of conditions is that there's a great amount of risk just to be able to continually challenge the Chinese activities over a period of time. And I think what's important, as John noted, is that, you know, Vietnam was willing to accept this risk. They were willing to accept it for weeks and weeks, uh, a fairly high level of risk uh, in which, you know, ships were sunk, uh, people were certainly injured. And so uh, that took a fair amount of fortitude. And I think that's one of the big lessons from the study is that 
you can't push back against coercive activities without accepting some risk. And the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese knew that, and they were willing to accept that risk. But if you look at some of our other cases in which the Chinese were more successful, you find claimants or even the United States backing off to avoid possibility of escalation. Turning to the United States and its track record in countering coercion, we asked Zach to evaluate how well-aligned U.S. strategy and response at the White House and National Security Council level have been with U.S. tools and practitioners at the Departments of State and Defense, including the U.S. military, in responding to the different cases of coercion they reviewed. Well, I, I think this has been a continuing question, not just in the Trump administration, but in the Obama administration. There were frequent stories in the Obama administration suggesting that the U.S. Pacific Command wanted to take a harder line against Chinese activities in the East China Sea and South China Sea, and that the White House and State Department were much more hesitant to do so. Um, I, I don't think we know yet exactly what uh, the dividing lines are in the Trump administration. But I, I think one can naturally assume that it, some of this is personality driven, but much of it is also driven by the institutional interests of those various organizations. Uh, and you know, I think one, one real question that we have to ask going forward is, what are the US aims, particularly in the South China Sea, where we've already seen the situation change so dramatically for years, the U.S. insisted that there should be no reclamation, construction, or militarization in the Spratleys or even elsewhere in the South China Sea. We've now seen all three of those occur on the Chinese part. We've seen responses from regional states as well. And so the real challenge for Washington is to come up with a, a new plan, a new view about what it wants to do, what it wants to deter, and frankly, in some cases, what kinds of changes to the status quo it might be willing to live with. Cooper also describes one case where closer alignment on the U.S. side produced results that favored the United States and its partners and allies. In 2016, uh, there were rumors that China might reclaim land at Scarborough Shoal uh, and try and build a facility there. And I think many people in the government were very concerned about this. And although we don't have a lot of evidence, it does appear that the United States was able to take a number of fairly substantial actions to demonstrate that it was willing to accept some risk to prevent China or to convince China not to reclaim land at Scarborough Shoal. So uh, sending A-10s into uh, the Philippines, sending a carrier strike group into the region, uh, and apparently some very direct appeals to senior Chinese leadership to avoid this possible confrontation. And, and it appears to have worked. So, you know, I think it's important for us to remember that it's not that the Chinese are always successful in their coercive efforts. Uh, in some cases, it has been possible for regional states or for the United States to push back effectively against Beijing. What should the United States and the Trump administration do to counter this coercion in the Asia Pacific? John Schaus argues that U.S. policymakers have to weigh issues and how they affect U.S. interests, message clearly, be prepared to accept risk, and also impose costs against China in areas that are deemed crucial. So I think what the, the United States needs to do is, as Zach alluded to a moment ago, is think carefully about what are the issues and the interests it has that it is willing and it views it must preserve, and what are those areas where it's willing to accept some level of change in an appropriate way. And in those cases where it has clear and enduring interests, the United States needs to most likely message that clearly in advance. It needs to be willing to 
position itself to accept risk and to impose costs on countries that push back against those interests. And up until now, I think in many cases, those signals have been a little bit muddy or unclear. And that, that has led to some, some confusion. Where, we have, where the United States has been clear in its actions, for example, in a case where uh, Chinese maritime, predominantly naval vessels, harassed a USNS uh, uh, maritime surveillance ship, the United States very rapidly came back with a, a Navy escort. And that hasn't been a repeated incident in the last several years. So where the U.S. has clearly demonstrated resolve and a willingness to accept risk, China has responded in a way that is uh, calming, I would say. In other cases, the U.S. hasn't been as effective, and it's created some confusion. Zach Cooper explains that identifying the different strategy behind Chinese actions and then tailoring the response will be important to achieving a stronger track record. And I, I think you know part of what John's pointing to is that the U.S. has to react differently to different kinds of Chinese actions. And this is, in the report, what we call tailoring deterrence. And uh, what we find is that the Chinese pursue very different strategies uh, in four types of cases. In some cases, they'll uh, pursue a strategy that we call a limited probe. Uh, in others, they, they pursue a uh, controlled pressure strategy. In other cases, they attempt to uh, make a fait accompli where they change something without getting a reaction. And then finally, in other cases, uh, Beijing looks to make an ultimatum and just hopes that other countries abide by it. And so the U.S. has to think ahead of time about the kinds of Chinese actions that we might expect and what the Chinese strategy is in each of those cases and then respond accordingly. How can the United States work with partners and allies to improve its counter-coercion track record? John Schaus makes the case that closer collaboration is the path forward. I think we're actually very clear about that in the report. And where uh, partners and allies, and especially allies, are uh, being pressured or being coerced, the United States should uh, offer to work more closely with those partners and tighten the alliance where the partner or the ally is willing. Because the idea here is closer alliances uh, make it harder to coerce the both parties. Uh, more distant alliances or more distant connections make it easier to coerce either party and to break them apart. Um, so to the extent that both parties are willing to engage tightly, the United States should. You can read the full report by lead authors Dr. Kathleen Hicks and Dr. Michael Green, along with Zach, John, and Jake Douglas on CSIS.org. You'll find a link to the PDF in the show notes for this podcast. You can also find a summary of each case study on the CSIS Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site. You can find John on Twitter at Schaus underscore CSIS and follow Zach at Zach Cooper. As the Trump administration and partner governments seek to counter future coercion in maritime Asia, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to John Schaus and Zach Cooper for detailing their findings and explaining the implications. The audio for this podcast was edited by Bryce Thompson. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and Cogitasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org.
Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis on Maritime Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Also be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.